Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, we're really pleased today to be joined by James Godfrey Fawcett, who's founder of Wild Urban Spaces. He creates microforests. His company is actively regreening urban environments. And personally, I'm really passionate about greening urban areas and more city planners and architects are looking at biophilic design um, considerations to increase green space. I'm hoping this podcast will really inspire city planners and developers, councils, and government strategists to see there's a solution to help them create more wild urban spaces for all of us. James, really many thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it today. Thank you, Vanessa. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the invite. Okay, great. Cheers. And um, well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, what's your journey been, um, uh, you know, to get to work, you know, get to the position of working in uh, wild urban spaces? Yeah, of course. Well, my background is in landscaping, garden design for about 20, 20, 25 years I was in that. Um, and I kind of always was always interested in, in the organic um, biodynamic aspects of it so I kind of never really worked with chemicals always looked to sort of heat trees rather than throw them out and this sort of thing but I always had this burning desire um, to do more and I kind of in life you know we should follow our burning desires if we can um, and mine was always to help the environment but I didn't know quite how to do it because I think perhaps like a lot of people out there you have this burning desire, you want to do something, but you don't really know where to start. And then you get overwhelmed and, and you kind of end up doing nothing. Um, so mine always revolved around, I've always had a love of trees, even since, since I was a child and, and forests in particular. I love, there's something very magical about forests. Um, I could talk for hours about forests, but so it's kind of, I was looking for some way of developing what I knew, like the skills that I had and turning that into a business, but also a business that could become something bigger and make a, make a difference and a couple of years ago actually three years ago I was watching a documentary called um, Call of the Forest which is I highly recommend it's wonderful with um, Diana Beresford Kroger who's, who's an amazing Kroger for amazing woman um, and in it she interviewed this little Japanese man called Akira Miyawaki um, and he was explaining about his this method he had called the Miyawaki method um, and it was like that was my epiphany I think that was my eureka moment and it's basically that is the method that I use to for my work now with wild urban spaces and it's the methodology um, that we use to create these really rapid growth very dense basically maintenance free urban microforests. Well, um, I might go straight and actually and ask you what this Miyawaki um, uh, concept is. I mean, um, as you say, they're micro forests and they're rapid growth, low maintenance urban forests. But um, it sounds too good to be true. Um, so how does it work? I mean, how does it how does it work? Sure. I mean, the background, just very quickly, the background is Akira Miyawaki. He, he started this method or he came up with this method. I mean, he's kind of copying nature, so so he didn't really invent it. He came up with about 40 to 50 years ago. Um, since then, there's been around the globe three, 3,000 Miyawaki forests, 40 million trees. With, and this is kind of a crucial point, 97% success survival rate. So they're huge, you know, normally you get easily 20% would die, but we're only losing two or 3% in forests. Um, and the methodology he used, he was a great environmentalist. He wanted, to 
restore native forests in areas of Japan because they literally, I think they have 1% left in Japan. All, all the, everything else is non-native, it's not indigenous. And so he did this incredibly simple thing, but very profound thing of observing how nature would form a forest. And it sounds really easy, but it's, you know, it's incredibly complex. And he turned this into a, a methodology called the Miyawaki method after himself. And it's how we create this forest. And it's basically based on mirroring the laws of nature. So what you would do is you observe how a forest forms over say 600 to a thousand years, take out the bits that perhaps aren't necessary, condense it all, and you end up with something that in about 20 years, two decades, you can create um, mature forests using this methodology. And it's 100% natural um, and it works. You know, it, as I said, there's 40 million trees have been planted like this around the world. Um, and it's extraordinary because it literally is it's copying nature. It's copying, you know, which we don't do enough. You know, we don't observe nature. We kind of charge in and we use our chemicals and we space trees out with a with a um, tape, tape measure and do you know what I mean? And, and we pull out weeds because we don't want the look of them. When in fact, you know, doing all that, we're ignoring what, ne what nature's telling us. Um, and this is the fundamental law of you know, the Miyawaki method is where we just observe nature and then we copy it, take the bits out that, that aren't necessary and speed the process up massively. That was really cool. So, I mean, you said it's only, it's only like um, a two to 3% loss. Yes. Is that right, of trees. Yeah. So what, what is that? Is that just because you think it's it's more natural, it's more the way things should be sort of thing? I think so. I mean, if you want, I, I mean, if I run you through Please what do. we do, it probably makes more sense, actually. Yeah, I know. Um, do, yeah. You're kind of condensing it, really. The, the first thing we do is, you, is something called potential natural vegetation. Mm -hmm. And that, this is probably the most important thing. And it's um, working out which trees should be growing where you're planting and, and we you know we don't do this enough we stick an oak in because it's an oak or we use non-native trees mm. and they struggle where what we do is we look literally within about 10 or 20 miles what are the native trees which ones are doing well and then we copy that so we're copying the ones that are specifically adapted to the biology and the environment that they're going to be planted in and they're always native you know, it goes without saying in my opinion you know we should always plant native um, so we choose the right trees. Those trees are, are adapted to the to the biology in the soil. You know they'll they'll have the right fungal connections, so you get the symbiotic link-ups in the soil. They're kind of better adapted to the environment. They have the the links with the biodiversity, so you get the biodiversity chain. So kind of everything looks after itself. And by doing that, we we really give the trees a head start. They're you know, sort of in the best environment that they can be where other trees might struggle. So that's the first thing. And then we, within that, we identify canopy layers. So we're trying to form as quickly as possible all the different layers of a forest. Um, so it's very dense. So that then means the biodiversity can move in. Um, and also, you know, you need less water and these types of things because it's much, much denser. Um, and then we plant incredibly densely. So we plant three to four saplings per square meter, uh, which people kind of, that's almost the, the part people can't get their heads around. They're like, well, you can't plant three to four trees a square meter, they won't grow. If you went into a dense forest, that's how it starts off. It starts off more. I mean, you can have a thousand saplings in a square meter in a, 
in a dense rainforest. And basically you get competition, so they all grow and then gradually it, some of them die out, some of them grow, and that's the way a forest naturally forms. So again, we're just mirroring the way that nature, nature would form, which is this incredibly dense way of planting. Um, and then also we do a huge amount of work on the soil. Um, again, what we're looking for is, is really fertile, very fungally dominant soil, because trees want to grow in fungally dominant soil. They don't want to grow. What does that mean? So what does fungally dominant, what does that mean? <laughs> Basically like, like soil, like soil is a living thing. Soil yeah. is a huge, massive living organism. And you have soils that are, are dominated by fungi, um, by the mushroom family. And then you have soils that are dominated by bacteria and they're two different things. And things like plants, vegetables want bacteria because they can release the nitrogen that way. But trees want the fungal networks because that's how they access their nitrogen, for example, through ammonia. And also, but how they survive because they have this wonderful symbiotic relationship where they'll, they'll send carbohydrates out through their roots and then that feeds the fungi. The fungi then release the minerals back to the trees and kind of, and then everybody's happy. So you get this like beautiful sort of family network that goes on, but it's, it's really important to set it up. We have to add those aspects to our soil to begin with um, and sort of create this, this forest floor basically, which is what trees want to grow in and it has to be fluffy. So we fluff the soil up so it's crumbly and we add, like mineral rock dust so we up the mineral content of our soil as well so basically what we're trying to do is, is create soil that then is self-sustaining but it looks after itself mm -hmm. whereas people always think you have to keep adding compost or whatever mm -hmm. actually if you've got the right biology in your soil that creates and you feed from above um, with mulching and dead leaves then your soil will look after itself forever yeah that sort of makes sense, doesn't it, really? I mean, when you, when you explain it like that, anybody listening would go, yeah. And why would you make, I mean, I sort of stayed on a, um, a, one of these rewilding places and, you know, you, you, listen, you talk to these people and you think, well, why do people, why would people shove their animals in, in little tiny cages to have all that nightmare of, you know, looking after them, injecting them, do this kind of stuff. But actually, when you let them go free, you hardly have to do anything. So it's the same thing. If, you, if we stop, you know, imposing our sort of thought processes, our yeah. belief system in how you should farm something, including farming trees. If we just yeah. let nature do, its, do the right thing and we, we let ourselves do the right thing as well, um, it's, it's better all around, isn't it, to be fair, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, your, the, your chicken should be wandering around your garden and yeah. picking, picking the insects off the vegetables. I mean, that's yeah. just the way it should be, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Not, not cooped up and not being able to move around. And yeah, I know. These are the Lord, these are, this is how nature works and yeah. we just don't observe it. Yeah, I know. And then people are sort of stupid as well in sort of days of Instagram land. I mean, you know, you know, letting your chickens run around your trees, it's sort of Instagrammable, isn't it? You know, so there's a <laughs> win-win for these people who are kind of, you know, that way inclined. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, I mean, why, why do you think cities and, and sort of town planning you know, why is it important for, for, for them to, or, you know, to, to actually start looking at, at putting these fast growing forests, you know, into their planning processes? Yeah, I mean, they have the, there's a huge amount of benefits, just, just from a practical point of view. Yeah. Um, because of the, the methodology, we, we aim for um, maintenance free after three years. Right. And it's about 
but two in the tropics, three in our temperate climates. And what that literally means is you leave it, you, you, you just don't do anything to it. You don't water, you don't touch it, you just let it be. And that, that way, you know, you've got the real haven for biodiversity. The biodiversity becomes, again, self-sustaining. It's got everything it needs and, and you just step away. Um, so from a practical point of view and a long-term financial point of view, that's a really important aspect. Um, you know, when we install, they're perhaps they cost a bit more than normal tree planting, but, but long-term, you know, it's something that you don't have to maintain and it's something that sustains its soil and it's something that brings in a hundred times more biodiversity than mono plantations and grassland. So it's a kind of no-brainer really. Um, and the other, I mean, the other reasons which are huge is, is we work with is, is trying to bring biodiversity in, into urban areas, even more so perhaps than the environmental carbon capture just because there's this massive lack of biodiversity in urban areas, lack of habitats for animals, for insects, for all forms of organisms and everything. So that's something that's really important. And by creating these self-sustaining forests, it's about the best ecosystem outside of the sea that you can have for, for creating incredible homes for, for biodiversity, you know, an oak tree, because it's in the right environment, can have a home for over 500 insects. Um, it, you know, not many people know oak trees provide um, a home for wild bees to, to um, hibernate in over winter. It's just all these little things like this. Um, and so the biodiversity factor is really important. And then there are all the, the environmental issues as well. I mean, you know, a forest, because they're so dense, even the little ones they do take in huge amounts of or relatively huge amounts of carbon um, particulate matter they filter out of the air which is more and more important they lower the ambient temperature um, and also which is another one that's becoming more important is, is they, they help with the runoff of water you know the more and more concrete that we're putting into cities where does the water go we seem to be having like you know such heavy rain showers now like, like our climate is changing and you get these surges of water where because our soil is so fertile yeah. and the trees grow so fast so yeah they, they, they can process up to 150 litres of rainwater per hour per square metre but if you've got that in the middle of an urban area it literally takes in the water because it's fertile and rich in carbon the soil it holds the water as well mm. um, so it's, it's a huge aspect for that and it's also finally you know it's aesthetic I mean forests are beautiful places they're sensory places as well you know they stimulate your eyes and your ears and your nose and, and everything really so so for me it's a win-win situation bringing, bringing forests into urban areas yeah i think so and i think it's great it's all great educational places as well isn't it to take kids and yeah. well anybody Absolutely. really you know um i mean i, I didn't realize that about them processing 150 liters did you say that's about 150 liters of water yeah per per square meter of soil I mean, yeah, I know. I mean, they should they should do this on every new build location, shouldn't they? I mean, yes, exactly. you know, yeah. Um, yeah so you, you don't need much to make a make a difference. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, what locations are you implementing them in right now? I mean, anywhere in the UK, sort of anywhere you could share? Absolutely. Probably the what might be the most interesting one was we did one in Dagenham in East London. Um, which we did the end of last year with the um, 
Buckingham Dagenham authorities. And that was, we did a hectare, we did a hectare Miyawaki forest in Parcells Park, which is the biggest like Miyawaki forest in Europe at the moment. So that was 32,000 trees in a hectare um, and all sorts of like things. You can imagine what we got up to with the soil. I mean, it was just vast, great soil works and everything. Um, <laughs> and I think because we mulched very heavy, like over 30 tons of straw that had to be spread by hand and, and, all, and all sorts of amazing things. But um, so that was a great one that we did end of last year. It was a huge, huge project. What, um, what sort of trees? What sort of trees and planting did you do? I mean, what, you know. There we used, uh, I think it was 24 species of native tree. So there's about, I think there's like 60, 65 species of native tree in the UK not many okay. um when you think like the amazon's over eight thousand. Um, oh is that right that difference yeah it's huge yeah so we have i think because we're cut off so much basically so yeah we have about 60 something brazil has eight thousand and fifty-eight or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easier to choose hey, trees here which is good um so um, yes, yeah, so we used 24 species, I mean just the mix, because we were mixing up the height, so we used oaks, beech, I think hazel, hawthorn, juniper, um, crabapple, elder, gelder rose, which obviously is a tree, um, lime, and now my mind's gone blank, but um, a kind of like a mix of just, just the different heights of, 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 of native trees. Yeah, it's, it's great. Well. I was going to say, can you imagine that in, in autumn time, all the different colour leaves, the beech leaves, the oak leaves, how they all change at different different times slightly, don't they? You know. And we designed it as well to to look like a like a leaf from above. Oh, so seriously? Yeah, oh, with cool. Um And we sent a drone up, which was kind of quite fun. But it but when we planted, there were no leaves because we were planting in the dormant season. So when it's green, or, or like you're saying, like the autumn. We're going to send a drone up again and you'll see this hopefully this kind of green leaf shape which will be sort of amazing really to look down on. That's lovely and it's open to the public I mean people can go can they is it? Yeah, yeah it's in the middle of Parcells Park yeah anybody can go yeah. Yeah I'll have to go down with my camera and have a look and, and shoot some yeah. shoot some arty farty shots. <laughs> totally. Yeah absolutely I can send and also there's um we did do a film of it as well actually okay. um, a little film yeah that I can give you a Give you the um youtube or the website address to yeah so send us the link and then i'll share it um for our listeners and watchers uh, on the journal of biophilic design.com i'll um i'll share your link on on there so thanks okay. thanks james because no, no um, so, that was with actually just just a little caveat is um i work with an organization called sugi as well s-u-g-i okay um, so i split my time between now between wild open spaces and sugi and that project was actually for sugi um, and they're they're like they're such a fascinating, interesting rewilding setup because they now work all around the world. They've got what are people like me, but all around the world. Um, so people creating Miyawaki forests all around the world, and people can donate, and then you can see your your kind of couple of square meters of Miyawaki forest being built and everything all being planted. Um, and so it's a fascinating setup. We're really, doing some amazing amazing projects like in Cameroon and the Himalayas which is probably close to your heart um, and India and Australia and I was talking to someone in Kenya a man who's doing his first one in Kenya because he wants to 
bring them into schools in Kenya and stuff. So it's fascinating. And it's kind of like it's such a nice network to have there, kind of these people around the world doing the same thing. That's lovely. So it's called Sugi, S-U-G-I, yeah? Yeah, sugiproject.com, um, if anyone wants to have it. And that's where you can find the videos are on Sugi, if anybody wants to see the little film. And there's a couple on there. There was like a healing forest in America that, that you'd love. It's a beautiful little film, all about how they took the um, indigenous native um, people from the prison and they made, they got them to help plant uh, a forest at the prison. And this time things kind of, you know, try and reconnect them to their roots a bit. So it's quite a powerful film, actually. It's only two or three minutes. Okay. I'll have to have a look at that. I'm, I'm actually yeah. quite interesting, interested in how you can use biophilic design and nature in in helping prevent reoffending um, in prisons. Um, you know, I just think, I think, I mean, they're, they're doing it in, uh, in the Scandinavian sort of, area i think where they're letting i think I don't know if it's in finland or norway or somewhere but they're, they're they're people are more you know able to get out and engage with nature and and stuff and there's there's less offend you know offending they're less they're going back you know not going back into into crime so and they're open they're open more open prisons because it's all this thing about trust and and stuff so um but anyway so i'd be, be interested in seeing how they've how they've done that so um and yeah. it's true, the more we talk about it, the more we share these things, you just don't know who's listening. I mean, we've got over 8,000 people that listen to the podcast now, and, so, and they're all over the world. So random people, you know, um, so which is, which is great. So that's why I was really, really keen to, to collar you and, and get, get you on. So just, just <laughs> always banging, you know, bending the ear of somebody to, uh, to try and plant some trees. <laughs> um, I mean, why do you think it's really important uh, sort of now more than ever um, that sort of urban planners and, and architects and, and sort of, MPs and people should sit up and listen and actually get involved. I mean, you know, why is it important? And then how can they get it involved? You know, I think it's important because because partly in urban areas are running out of space. Mm -hmm. um, and once, you know, areas are built over, they're built over. And also, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think so many people have noticed this with, with the pandemic <laughs> the last year or so. So many people have, have, have kind of um, looks for like solace in nature haven't they they've actually realized that they need the outdoors and 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 it's almost like people have found nature like it's something new like have you have you experienced nature yet have you actually gone and heard a tree or sound of a tree it's really calming it's really weird and i think people like as if you know we, we we've created something new in nature and it's almost like something's been switched on in a lot of people um, and I think that's that's wonderful, and I think it's so important. But we need to kind of build on that, um, and we need to, you know, grassland parks and whatever are great. But if you can get people wandering amongst forests safely in urban areas or something, it's it's it takes it to another aspect. You know, you're getting into the forest bathing and the, the actual health aspects of, of what trees can do to us. Um, and so I just think it's highly important that we do it now while we've got a while we've got the space b while there's this huge spike in in consciousness and, and reconnection to nature and also you know it is you know time is wearing on you know, our climate is changing as we all know and biodiversity collapses are happening these things and we have to do something and we don't all have to go and save the, the rainforest that that's what i always think you know we don't have to go we can plant five trees you can plant wildflowers in your garden you can put a 
bird box up, it doesn't really matter if everybody in the world planted three trees, you know, happy days, we'd have nearly 20 million, 20 billion trees or whatever. Um, so, but by doing what we do and say, for example, with the microforests, it's not going to save the world's problems, but it, it's going to make a difference mm. and it's going to make people feel that there's something going on and also something that they can connect with. And then perhaps, you know, we get the butterfly effect from that. Yeah. Yeah, very true, actually. Yeah. Um, and how can, you know, if there's a town planner or a, an architect or an MP or whatever who's listening to this, how would they, how would they sort of start the process? I mean, how would they, I mean, presumably they would contact you, but then, but then what would happen? Yeah, they could, like, like normally what happens is either through, through me, which is Wild Urban Spaces, or through Sugi as well. Um, people approach us um, and then we just kind of have a general look at, you know what what the potential is it's it the hardest thing is, is almost finding the sites i know that sounds strange when when you look at how sort of you know much space there is in in urban areas it's having the sites that's why authorities like barking and dagenham are great because they've got the permission to go into the parks and create a hectare or something and schools are good as well you know we go into schools and we create them and, and educate the children like that so that's the key thing. If people have space, it makes it a lot easier. If not, you know, people can come to us sometimes and want to fund projects, which is great. But it's quite hard to go and to go and find a project. Um, sorry, to to go and find a site for a project. Um, but that's the hardest thing, really. So when people come to us, they've got the site. It's easy, um, and then it's just a process. It's a process of going, doing a site visit seeing the potential, you know, working out the trees, working out the quote and taking it from there really. And as much as possible, trying to involve the, the local community in the process as well. That's really good. I mean, when you say about the size, size of an area, what's what sort of size um, it's sort of like would be the minimum, say, for instance? I mean, what would we what we're we looking at? Yeah, really with with a, a microforest, it's um, it's a, about 150 square meters is really the smallest because from trying to create self-sustaining biodiversity you sort of need that square meterage mm -hmm. um, which is about 600 trees you're planting that but in saying that with Sugi we just launched something called pocket forests which is um, bringing um, tiny tiny forests into anywhere so like, like we do it quite a lot in London um, so we literally start at three square meters so you can have three square meters of forest in your garden in your office, on your rooftop, not really on your terrace because it'll get too big. Um, and that's fantastic. And that makes a difference. I mean, that, that's bringing biodiversity in. It's not huge, but it's bringing biodiversity into, mm. into areas and, and kind of creating the corridors in, in the urban area as well. Yeah, exactly. Like you mentioned, the corridors for like the wildlife and the bees and everything to kind of have like little pit stops all the way along, isn't it really, you know? So exactly. uh, <laughs> exactly. um, next to pit stop, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and rooftop, actually, rooftop gardening and rooftop planting is, is a really good good kind of idea as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I suppose presumably you'd have trees that, that roots wouldn't destroy the roof. I suppose there must be some kind of way of, of doing that. But, you know, if you're experts, you, you can advise on all those, those yeah. types of things. Exactly, as long as you've got a meter. Like tree roots don't really go below a meter. Tree roots do that. Um, one, one, 1 1.2 meters. So as long as you've got a meter of soil, um, you can do it on rooftops. Um, 
which is in a whole new kind of other world of wonderful world of rooftop forests. Is, uh, can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that would just like transform cities? I mean, and would it help with pollution? Wouldn't it? it would help with all the carbon, um, you know, the carbon output and stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely. And again, corridors, you know, you know, you could have wildlife corridors from rooftop to rooftop. Wouldn't it be amazing? God, yeah, I'll be, that would be really fun. I'm excited about that. I'm going to, I'm going to stick this under it. Every, every person I, I know is I'm just going to, I'm just going to send this. I'm going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> uh, all my architect mates and, and town planner people, right? They're getting this. So, um, Great. sounds good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just going to say, can people volunteer to help, by the way? I mean, can, I mean, do you sort of, is that, I mean, you said you're involved in local communities and stuff. I mean, can people who find out about it go, actually, can I come down and, and dig a hole with you guys? Yeah, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as I said, we do a lot of work with schools. Okay. Um, so we're doing one at the moment. Well, not the moment, we have to wait a little bit. But in about a month, we're planting with a school. And that one's lovely. We're creating a bee-friendly forest, bee and pollinator-friendly forest. But trees, we get, we've managed to work out local trees. We get seven months of food source for bees and pollinators. Um, and then the right trees for them to, to hibernate in over the winter. So we're creating this with the kids in the school. So that's one way. Another way is, is we literally, we have lists um, that people can put themselves on. So if they want to email and say, you know, I'd love to volunteer, well, when we're in the area and you know, the, the COVID's hopefully behind us and everything, people can come and give us a hand and more, more the better, to be honest. So definitely volunteering is a really big part of it, great. That's so cool. I'm so glad I got you on. Um, and, <laughs> um, and then really a sort of final question, a kind of sort of fun one. I ask everybody, um, if you could paint the world with a brush of biophilia, you know, with the sort of brush of nature, what would it be? What would it look like? So that's, a, that's a good question, isn't it? What a lovely question. Um, I think for me, again, it would be sensory. It would be the sensoriness of nature. So I think if everybody could wake up to the sound of birds um, or the smell of like, I've got a lilac tree outside my house, the smell of a lilac tree or the sound of, you know, that beautiful sound of, of like the wind in pine trees, you know, it sounds like the oceans. I think all that to me is, is almost the key of it is, is the sensory aspect. If we could all have that immersion for our senses in nature. I think it would be a better world. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.